0: Almost all the hate speech on Facebook is anti white. Mr. Reagan. So apparently, white Americans aren't actually racist. Shocking. This is actually from an article in the Washington Post, which is Bezos's communist propaganda rag. So for them to be acknowledging this gives you a sense of the credibility of this story. Now, last year, Facebook implemented a change in its hate speech filter, and this initiative was known as WOW, which stood for the worst of the worst. And the idea was to better target white hate speech against minorities and women and allow more black hate speech against white people and men. And that is not a joke. That is a real initiative at Facebook. Now, I'm going to read to you from an article that's also from The Washington Post from 2020, when this WOW initiative was created. All right, now let's look into Facebook's twisted initiative here. The overhaul, which is known as... The WOW project, and is in its early stages, involves re-engineering Facebook's automated moderation systems to get better at detecting and automatically deleting harmful language that is considered the worst of the worst, according to internal documents described the project obtained by the Washington Post. The worst of the worst includes slurs directed at blacks, Muslims, people of more than one race, the LGBTQ community, and Jews, according to the documents. As one way to assess severity, Facebook assigned different types of attacks numerical scores weighted based on their perceived harm. For example, the company's systems would now place a higher priority on automatically removing statements such as gay people are disgusting rather than men are pigs. Now, I get that a girl who is disgusted with a guy that maybe just broke up with her. She might flippantly say that men are pigs and she might not really mean that, but I've had gay dudes literally stand there at a party and ask me over and over again if I've ever thought about very specific sexual acts with men. That was pretty disgusting. My brother had his ass grabbed once by a gay dude. I've heard gay dudes make jokes about sex with unborn human fetuses. I knew one gay dude that turn just about everything I said into a sexual joke. So there are times when some guys might flippantly say gay people are disgusting. And, you know, perhaps they don't really believe that in the same way the girl that got broken up with doesn't believe that all men are pigs. All right, let's read the rest of this article. Facebook has long banned hate speech, defined as violent or dehumanizing speech based on race, gender, sexuality, and other protected characteristics. It owned Instagram and has the same hate speech policies there, but before the overhaul, the company's algorithms and policies did not make a distinction between groups that were more likely to be targets of hate speech versus those that have not been historically marginalized. Comments like white people are stupid were treated the same as anti-Semitic or racist slurs, as they should be. In the first phase of the project, which was announced internally to a small group in October, engineers said that they had changed the company's systems to deprioritize policing contemptuous comments about whites, men, and Americans. Facebook still considers such attacks to be hate speech, and users can still report it to the company. However, the company's technology now treats them as low sensitivity or less likely to be harmful, so they are no longer automatically detected by the company's algorithms. That means that roughly 10,000 fewer posts are now being deleted each day, according to the documents. So hate speech against white people is, quote, less likely to be harmful, and yet we've got a black serial killer, a black mass murderer, and a black... Supremacists calling for white genocide currently in the news. And I'm going to be playing the audio from that last one here in just a moment, by the way. But look, even if racism against white people or sexism against men or bigotry against Americans, even if these things were less likely to be harmful, as they say, and they are absolutely not, by the way, but even if they were, this kind of bigotry, according to Facebook, makes up 90% of the hate speech on Facebook. So even if it's less likely to be harmful, the quantity, the sheer quantity of the hate speech alone makes it more harmful. And by the way, if hate speech against white people and men make up 90% of what you find, then hate speech against black Americans must be infinitesimal, because the remaining 10% will include Asian hate, hate against Gays hate against Asians, women, Jews. So, how much of that remaining 10% is hate speech against black Americans? I'm guessing it is infinitesimal, under 1%, probably. And yet, that is what we are designating as the most harmful, the so called worst of the worst. But it's not the worst of the worst. The worst of the worst is black racism against white Americans, which has become an epidemic in America. Now, I already made a video talking about black supremacy in America, and I don't want to go over it twice, but I will say that I have been talking about this problem for years now. America really is not a racist country against minorities, but it is a racist country against white people, and this has become a real problem. On Twitter recently... The account Libs of TikTok posted this video. Now, what you're about to see is a bunch of black supremacists talking amongst each other. I
1: am for the white genocide. I am for the total erasure of the white race. You don't have to chop this up. Yes, I am for all of you white bitches dying like flies. I am for it. I am for it. I support it. I am for putting all you white possums in a gas chamber and letting that motherfucker ring, bitch. I am for it. So you don't have to chop shit up. I'm for it, and I'm going to stand 10 toes down behind it, bitch. Simple as that. So you got to chop shit up. You ain't got to screw the shit. Bitch, I said it, and I stand on it. Simple.
0: This is what happens when you promote racist ideas to black people. This is the fault of CNN. This is the fault of MSNBC. This is the fault of the New York Times. This is the fault of all the left-wing establishment media outlets. This is the fault of Hollywood. This is the fault of the social media giants. And the sad thing is that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube, they're not just censoring the worst of the worst as Facebook wants you to believe. They're censoring basically anything that conservatives say, and they pretend it's the worst of the worst, all while they try to facilitate black hate against white people. This is wrong. This is twisted, and this is something that we have to fight against. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just that they know so much that is not so. Good night.
1: I am eternally optimistic, and I happen to believe that we've made great progress from the days when I was young and when this country didn't even know it had a racial problem. I know those things can grow out of despair in an inner city, uh, when there's hopelessness at at home, lack of work and so forth.
0: Juror refuses to convict Illegal immigrant Serial killer Mr. Reagan this is really a very disturbing case And I've not seen it in the news Really at all So I thought you know what I'm going to cover it There's a lot of bad stuff in the news But this is one of those things That somehow flew under the radar Because there's a lot of crazy stuff going on And I thought you guys would want to hear about it Now this guy His name is uh, Billy Shamirmir that's his name. He's from Kenya in Africa. He moved to Dallas, Texas, and he overstayed his visa. So he was an illegal alien. Apparently, he married an American to get American citizenship. So he cheated the system, and got his green card. But he is, in fact, an illegal alien and probably guilty of of immigration fraud as well. But then after breaking our immigration laws, he went on to murder 24 elderly Americans, mostly women. He stole their jewelry and then he sold it online. And this was apparently the guy's job, like his career. He would murder old ladies and then he would sell their jewelry. He is an absolute monster.
1: It includes at least 24 murders
2: and two attempted murders throughout North Texas, beginning in 2016.
3: According to police reports, Mary Bartell told them a stranger forced his way in, grabbed a couch pillow, and smothered her until she blacked out. Then he walked out with her jewelry. Just one day earlier, and one door over, Mary's next door neighbor, Ann Conklin, had died. Plano police suddenly started taking a closer look and discovered a pattern of deaths in their Preston Place senior living community. There were seven within a six month period. All with missing jewelry. The mentality was well, these are seniors, it's all natural. Lori Delahunty's mother, Diane, was one of the victims whose death had initially been assumed to be from natural causes.
0: This guy is sick, he is a serial killer, and this is the kind of thing that you know you would have seen in the eighties or nineties on the national news. It would have been everywhere. He killed 24 people. That is a crazy number of people to murder. And this was just within two years. So he's killing like at least one person every month for two years. Uh, but of course, nobody has been reporting on this because he's black. He is an illegal immigrant and he murdered white people. So, you know, it doesn't fit the narrative. But here's the real horror of this story. This is a clear cut case. This this guy is very obviously guilty, no question. And yet, this guy got a mistrial. And he got a mistrial because one of the jurors refused to convict. Now, I have done several videos on black criminals and black racists lately. And you might think that this is some kind of kick that I'm on, that I've decided to focus on this for some reason. No, not at all. And unfortunately, this is all just stuff that's been popping up in my news feeds lately. And look, I've been warning Americans... About this for years now The media keeps facilitating Black aggression against white Americans They have provoked black Americans They keep telling them how evil white people are With, you know, the sensational news stories Lies about good Americans like Kyle Rittenhouse And they provoke people through critical race theory That's taught in schools, taught in universities Taught in corporations And even in the U.S. military They are ignoring the serious racism that exists by black Americans against white Americans. They are ignoring crimes by black Americans against white Americans. They refuse to report about any of that stuff, and when they do, they try to minimize the horror of it, or they just try to they, like try to justify it in some way. I mean, this is twisted. This is twisted. Now, in, uh, in one case, in one of the murders, this guy, Billy Shamir Mir, he went to Walmart and he stalked his victim, and he found the woman that he would kill, and he followed her back to her home. He broke in, and he smothered her with a pillow, and then he stole her jewelry, and he stole it online. And that seemed to be his modus operandi. He'd find an elderly target shopping, he'd follow them home, he'd murder them, he'd steal all their jewelry, and then he'd sell it online.
3: In 2016, Shamir Mir had been caught twice at the Edgemere Senior Living Apartments in Dallas, using a fake name and falsely claiming to be an employee. Police now believe by the time he was stopped and charged with trespassing there, he'd already killed three women in that complex, Catherine Sinclair, Phyllis Payne, and Phoebe Perry. The next eight murders she's linked to started the following month at the tradition Prestonwood Senior Living Facility. Among the victims were Leah Corkin, Mary Jo Jennings' mother.
0: Eight victims of three and a half months, I mean, you know, a majority of them with police reports, missing jewelry.
3: And Doris Gleason, Shannon Dion's mother. Do you think someone else should have pieced this together? I wish they had. The next murder Shamir Mirs accused of occurred more than a year later in 2017 at the Parkview Apartments in Frisco. The feeling was so horrible. Cheryl Pangburn discovered her mother, Marilyn Bixler. Her body was perfectly positioned between the couch and the coffee table. One month later, a 93-year-old at the complex reported a well-dressed man posing as a maintenance worker had asked her if she needed work done. When she said no, he knocked her from her walker and tried to muffle her screams and smother her with a pillow. But she survived and would months later pick Shamirmir out of a photo lineup. After that came the string of fatal attacks at Preston Place, and occasionally the murder of an elderly woman in her own home. Once police started looking at Shamirmir though, the pieces began coming together. On March 20th, 2018, the day after the attack on Bartel, officers were staked out at Mir's apartment complex when they say he arrived home and tossed something in a dumpster. Inside, they found a jewelry box belonging to Luthi Harris. In his car, they say were the keys to her Dallas home, where officers later found her. A medical examiner determined that final victim died only about an hour before his arrest.
0: Now, this story is heartbreaking for several reasons. One, he should have been deported years ago. And two, after having been caught and, and tried for these crimes, he should have been convicted. But but this one jury member refused to convict. Here is the reaction of some of the families of the victims.
3: Well, as was mentioned, we are devastated uh, at the outcome of this trial. We are very thankful to the prosecution for putting together such a strong and compelling case and we are sickened that we have to come back in and, and hear the same evidence again the the same correct and just evidence and true evidence that Billy Shamir Mir has killed so many people and um, so we're yeah we're we're sick that we have to come back and, and hear this again
1: you know they presented a really great case and the one that abstained uh, that voted uh, didn't vote y- yes didn't they didn't even go back and look at it had any questions didn't have anything to go back and ha- anything to ask about the trial just stayed at no how do you do that i mean you must have some reason for not you know, for having voting the way that you did on this this jury, it's it's a terrible tra. It was a terrible tragedy for all these these people up here that have their their mothers uh, slain. It
3: was one jury, eleven to one. Yeah, not once did they want to look it at it. To me, she had her mind made up at the beginning. She probably had her mind made up before the trial started. Yes, I think they need to look into her, <laughs> see what her but I'm just saying that she didn't, you know, fair trial yes, but she needed to be fair with the evidence. We want this story out there. Um, it really has been snuffed under the rug. And for other people to know where I live, no one knows the story. Mm-hmm. Yes, Dallas, you know, we have all y'all you know done such a wonderful job, but The whole world needs to know. They need to protect their parents, they need to watch out. I just want everyone to be aware so that they
1: can informed decisions. make informed decisions. What were the hopes for the outcome?
3: Guilty. Guilty. Capital murder plus. Life without Mm -hmm. parole.
0: Now, we don't know who the juror is that refused to convict this guy, but we do know that it's a woman. And my guess, from what I've heard about her, is that it's some BLM supporter radical leftist chick probably a black chick who wants criminal justice reform and you know all the crap that the socialists promote. So this is the thinking of the left. This is their logic. Because black people tend to be convicted of crimes a lot, we've got to let serial killers go. These leftist nut jobs are becoming a real problem in America. I mean, the left really is destroying this country. But it's not just about the coddling of black criminals. This is also about The light hand that we have with illegal immigrants. This is one of the major problems with refusing to deport illegal aliens. If a murderer wants to overstay a visa or even walk across the border, they know that they will never be deported. Now, any vicious criminal who knows this they're going to recognize that, oh, this is a great place to go murder people. This is a great place to go steal things. This is a great place to go commit whatever crimes it is I want to commit because I'm not going to be deported. Leftists are incentivizing criminals to come to the U.S. And another thing that leftists don't understand is that not all cultures hold the same values as Americans. Not all cultures find racism reprehensible. Not all cultures hold human life as sacred. Not all cultures believe that violence and theft are wrong. Now, I've argued for a long time now that cultures that are similar to American culture, they need to be given priority for immigration. Leftists have fought against this for decades by calling such preference racist. But that is absurd. I want to prioritize immigrants that have the least propensity to steal and murder. If those immigrants happen to come from European nations, that doesn't make that priority racist. However, rejecting such a policy because the least violent immigrants are white, well, that is racist. Now, if it were up to me, I'd round up every illegal alien and I would deport them back to their home country. I'd set the immigration system up to prioritize Germans and Swedes and Dutchmen and the Swiss and the Irish and the Danes and the Norwegians and the Brits and the Poles and even the Russians and other Eastern Europeans. Claims of racism be damned. This prioritizing non-white immigrants in the name of diversity, this needs to end. Multiculturalism is not a virtue. And sometimes this serial killer is the result. Well, that's it for me. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just that they hate white people. Good night.
1: I am eternally optimistic. And I happen to believe that we've made great progress from the days when I was young and when this country didn't even know it had a racial problem. I know those things can grow out of despair in an inner city um, when there's hopelessness at at home, lack of work, and so forth. The
2: Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here, joined today by Judge Andrew Napolitano, who is the host of his own brand new podcast. And I'm going to just go ahead and ask him about that. What's the name of the podcast, Judge?
1: Judging Freedom, Tom. And uh, I have to give credit for the name to our mutual friend, Brian Wilson, who came up with it a long time ago and I sort of resurrected it. And uh, like you, I talk about issues of uh, personal liberty to people who are concerned about government excess. Who isn't concerned about government excess?
2: (laughs) Yeah, you would think by now at this point. Well, you have a column, a recent, was this a Washington Times column that I'm reading?
1: It actually comes out, this wednesday night so tomorrow evening at eleven fifty-nine p.m but i sent you an early copy of it because i knew it would be of interest to you and i knew we were going to be doing and recording your podcast today
2: okay very good and i think by the time it comes out we won't be stepping on any toes over at the washington times so it should all work out just fine so you're talking in this column well it's called what happens when the government breaks its own laws and uh I learned some stuff here that I guess if I'd been following the news a little more closely, I would have known about, things that we just learned about what the CIA and FBI had been up to. Of course, we know now about the torture of detainees, but it's interesting about what has further since been revealed about all this. And and a lot of times, the government, rather than come forward with this information, tries to... You know, use all kinds of state secret doctrines to keep it all hushed up. So, who knows what else is going on that we don't know about? But what have we, in fact, learned over the past few weeks?
1: Well, in the past couple of weeks, Tom, and by the way, I have to tell you, it's an absolute delight. I don't know if the audience knows this. You and I are bosom buddies for a long, long time, but it's a delight to be on this uh, podcast, which is so highly regarded internationally, but certainly among people that are concerned about human freedom. And it's a joy for me to work with you, Tom. Thank you. We, we learned in the past couple of weeks, some very interesting things for the first time in American, in modern American history, a defendant in a criminal case sat in a public American courtroom, a military courtroom, where the prosecutors, by the way, are both military and civilian and testified to the torture that was inflicted upon him by the CIA. This testimony was given after he had pleaded guilty, and it was part of a sentencing hearing. The government did not challenge any of the allegations of torture, and it was horrific. That's not what I wrote about in this article, but I wrote about it a couple of weeks ago, and it's fascinating that the government didn't challenge it. The jury, which consisted of eight Senior lifetime American military officers. Seven of those eight wrote a letter to the judge saying the government's behavior was reprehensible and it undermines American values, and the defendant should receive the lowest sentence possible in return for what he went through. We also learned that the CIA, back in the Bush administration, encouraged, facilitated, and paid for torture of these detainees at the hands of foreign intelligence agencies. One of the foreign intelligence agencies was in Poland, and the Polish government is now prosecuting the Polish agents who actually inflicted the torture on this same person who gave the testimony in the courtroom in Cuba. When the lawyers for the Polish prosecutors subpoenaed records From the American military to substantiate the allegations of torture, the Department of Justice elevated the, you pointed this out earlier, the state secret doctrine. Now, the state secret doctrine is a judge-made rule, which basically says whenever the government claims that the revelation of a secret would adversely affect national security, the government doesn't have to reveal it. Now, there's more here than meets the eye because this doctrine came about by a subterfuge in which the government lied to 12 federal judges, all of whom bought the lie and concocted the doctrine. But it's interesting because the prosecutor for the Justice Department in the Supreme Court, where this case ended up about whether or not the DOJ has to surrender DOD and CIA records of torture, the prosecutor said to the Supreme Court, well, our ability to maintain state secrets in wartime is enhanced, whereupon Justice Kavanaugh said, well, what do you mean in wartime? What war are we fighting? Now, this conversation that I'm recounting to you, Tom, took place three weeks ago. The prosecutor's response was, we're fighting a war in Afghanistan, in which, of course, the whole court and everybody in the courtroom roared with laughter, and Justice um, Kagan hardly an ideological colleague of Justice Kavanaugh said, are you the only person on the planet who thinks we're still fighting a war in Afghanistan? So I think it's kind of obvious which way that case is going to go. But more and more torture keeps getting revealed in Guantanamo. What was revealed last week and what I wrote about in this week's column was in order to maintain the attitude that the FBI are the good guys and the CIA are the bad guys in this war on terror. The FBI secretly transferred nine FBI agents and made them CIA agents for two years so that they could engage in torture without besmirching the reputation of the FBI. Now, you would think that this is ridiculous. Torture is torture. doesn't matter what the title of the torturer is. Apparently, it only matters to the government. We learned this happened in 2001 and 2002, probably with the personal approval of George W. Bush. I say probably because this only happened once before in American history, and it was with the personal approval of President Eisenhower when FBI agents were transferred to CIA so that they could do things which, as FBI agents, they wouldn't be permitted to do. So kind of a long answer to your question, about what we learned. We learned a lot of other things about the FBI, but with respect to torture, this is the most recent that we learned.
2: Well, as I was reading your column, I got to the part where you say that the way this is all unfolded makes it look as if the CIA are the terrible bad guys who want to torture people, but the FBI have clean hands, and so the FBI are the good guys, and this preserves a certain narrative. But then you say, you know, you point out that The FBI say that they uh, weren't involved in torture. They they didn't engage in it. And you're saying, well, did they do this because they just wanted to be able to testify later that they never abused prisoners? And then you say, unless that is FBI agents were transferred to the CIA and thus stopped being FBI agents so they could engage in dirty deeds without besmirching the Bureau. And I thought, oh, come on, that wouldn't happen. (laughs) 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 And then then, your next sentence
1: is, but that's what they did. Right. I mean, it's abs- it's absurd the links through which the government will go in spending our money and abusing the authority we have given them to cover things up. The interesting question is now, who are these nine agents? They were never identified. Did they ever testify under oath that they never tortured anybody as FBI agents without revealing to the questioner and the fact finder that they did so as CIA agents. I mean, if an FBI agent admitted he tortured or physically abused a defendant, in most courtrooms in the United States of America, no matter what the defendant did, the case would be dismissed. And FBI agents know this. So the question is, to what lengths did they go to engage in this subterfuge that though they tortured somebody, they technically were not in the FBI at the time they did it? You can't make this stuff up, Tom.
2: Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So another thing in your column involving the FBI has to do with what you describe as the misuse of informants in domestic law enforcement. Now, do you think there is a proper use for informants? And if so, how did the FBI cross the line in the cases you're describing?
1: The only proper use for informants is by not paying them, which will diminish almost all use of informants. Because the FBI has been paying a fortune to them, and they all know this. You want to make some money, and you're involved in in group crime, and they've nailed you. Go to the FBI, offer to go back to your group of criminals, help the FBI entrap them. You'll make some money, and the charges against you will be diminished. Now, if this is a one-off or a two-off or a five-off, I can understand it. But in eight years, the FBI spent $300 million, $300 million compensating informants and $42 million a year paying their expenses. So the informant gets his charges reduced, in some cases dismissed, because these informants are all criminals themselves, in return for which the FBI compensates them. And this is the real head-scratcher, and the most outrageous thing short of the torture in this piece. The FBI authorized its informants in a four-year period to commit 22,500 crimes. I'll repeat that. The FBI authorized, now this information, I didn't dig this up. This is from the inspector general's report of the Department of Justice. He's an official of the Department of Justice, looked at these records, and he concluded that the FBI authorized its informants to commit 22,500 crimes in a four-year period. Those are federal as well as state crimes. So we have the issue of federalism. So FBI agents went to state and county prosecutors and said, this guy that you're indicting for bank robbery, you got to dismiss the indictment because he works for us. And of course, they all, okay, hey, well, it works for the FBI. Yeah, of course we will. So who is the FBI To decide what laws should be enforced and what laws should not. And who is the FBI to authorize criminal behavior? Under the Constitution, the president cannot authorize criminal behavior, though we know some have. The Congress can't authorize criminal behavior. They can enact a statute to say something is no longer criminal, but they can't authorize a human being to violate a federal law. And the courts can't authorize this. Yet the FBI does it. It's simply the destruction of the rule of law as we know it i mean when the fbi breaks the laws it has sworn to uphold it becomes a law unto itself and if the constitution was written to prevent anything it was written to prevent that
2: of course most of these crimes we never find out anything about it occasionally there's something very high profile maybe a case of alleged terrorism or would be terrorism that's then foiled it's foiled because They created it in the first place. But I guess probably the best known or among the best known of these was that alleged plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Mm. Well, it turns out the governor of Michigan would not really have been in any danger had the FBI not, so what was the thinking behind this?
1: I honestly think the thinking was an effort to damage the campaign of then President Donald Trump He had engaged in a lot of words, harsh words back and forth with the governor of Michigan, who was a rival to the governor of New Jersey for the most draconian COVID-19 lockdowns. So the time period for this is September and October of 2020. We're at the height of the campaign. The FBI concocts a plot to kidnap her. They engage 18 informants who in turn engaged 12 innocent dupes, members of a a local militia. So the FBI pays their expenses and the 12 and the 18, all 30 of them, plot together to kidnap the governor of Michigan. She was in no more danger of being kidnapped than you and I are right now. But the FBI then pulls the trigger, says, ah, we saved you, we saved the governor, Look at how horrible these right-wing groups are. They wanted to kidnap a public official because she's just doing her job. And of course, the 18 plotters that were secretly working for the FBI were not prosecuted at all. The FBI took the credit for saving the governor of Michigan. President Trump looked foolish because of what he had said about her. And I mean, I'm speculating as to their motive. There's no speculation as to what happened. We know there were 30 plotters 18 of whom were government employees.
2: Well, I don't hesitate at all to accept your theory here because as you you put it that way, you absolutely cannot exclude the
1: possibility that they would have done this for this kind of reason. So should the FBI be in the business of creating crimes, period? Should it be in the business of creating crimes to affect the outcome of an election campaign? I mean, this makes Jim Comey look like Sandbox all he did was make a couple of and I'm, and I'm not justifying him but all he did was stand in front of cameras and make a couple of announcements these guys spent a fortune and and led the governor to believe that she was within inches of being kidnapped in an effort to harm Trump's reelection michigan was a you know one of the states that didn't know which way it was going to go so somebody decided here's a way to make sure michigan goes for biden let's entrap some right-wing pro-trump groups into leading the world to believe that they were going to kidnap this liberal democratic, off-the-wall, crazy, draconian, lockdown, fanatic governor.
2: I wonder, of course, this is just speculation piled upon speculation, but if she knew that it was all phony from the beginning, if they tipped her off to, again, who can even know? Or if they would have thought the fewer people know, the better.
1: She's not a stupid person. I'm sure she knows it now. I don't know what they told her at the time. And Tom, this plot was very elaborate. They were going to put her on trial and they were going to keep secret whatever her punishment was. I mean, this is just almost science fiction, the length through which the FBI went to, and I'll, I'll say this, to terrorize voters in Michigan to tip the scales of that state against Donald Trump.
2: Well, First of all, I guess this column of yours uh when it does appear is going to appear in the online edition of the paper and not behind a paywall so I could link people to it.
1: Yes, it also well it appears in about 30 venues, one of which is near and dear to your heart and mine, com. It also appears in the hard edition, the print edition of the Washington Times.
2: Okay. Okay, so I'm going to link to it when it comes out. So uh, tomwoods.com slash 2018 will have a link to this piece so people can see it for themselves. But I want to, in the maybe 10-ish minutes we have left, shift gears entirely just to ask you some things that I've been curious about. And as you mentioned, we've known each other for a long time. And somehow, over that long time, I never asked you this. And so, doggone it, we're going to ask a couple things. I am curious about what got you into the law in particular, but more generally, what attracted you to the ideas that you and I believe in? And when you went into the law, did you think that you were doing so in the service of those ideas or were you interested in the law for some other reason? Can you tell us the uh, Andrew Napolitano story?
1: I have written um, 10 books on the constitution. The the 10th is not yet published. It's an academic piece. On uh, natural law constitutionalism in America. But the first of those books is called Constitutional Chaos, and then it has the same title as this article What Happens When the Government Breaks Its Own Laws? That is semi autobiographical, in which I describe my ideological odyssey from conservative Republican to, as our friend Austin Peterson likes to say, True North, Murray Rothbard, Lou Rockwell, Tom Woods libertarian. So in New Jersey, you become a judge appointed by the governor and confirmed by the state Senate. You have the appointment for seven years. If reappointed and reconfirmed before the end of the seven years, you have it for life. So I got both my initial appointment and my lifetime appointment by two moderate Republican governors, Tom Kane, the initial appointment, and Christine Todd Whitman, the second appointment. But the folks that went to Tom Kane for my initial appointment were some of the most conservative elements in New Jersey government and in the New Jersey Republican Party. Many of whom became somewhat disappointed with me on the bench because of my views that the Constitution means what it says. So, quite frankly, watching and listening to prosecutors cut holes in the Constitution to the point where I would say to them, Are you talking about the same constitution that I am? And listening to cops lie about what they did to acquire evidence made me so harshly skeptical of the government. And then I went back and reread so many of the books that I read in high school and college. And it brought me to a a view, a Miesian, as in Ludwig von Mises, a Miesian view of the government, that government is essentially the negation of liberty, that liberty is the natural starting point because freedom comes from our humanity. And uh, prosecutors would be furious at me because they would walk into my courtroom and expect to have a leg up because most judges will give them a leg up. Most judges, Tom, are prosecutors in black robes. And I would say, you know, you two are, are equal. If anything, the defendant has the leg up because whatever the statute is under which you're prosecuting him, you got to demonstrate to me not only that it's rational, not only that it's constitutional, but that it's moral. Otherwise, you're not going to prevail. I'm not even going to call a jury. I'm going to throw the case out. Of course, they weren't accustomed to that. So that's really in those years of my life, which for me was a while ago, but it was when I was in my mid 30s. I was the youngest judge in the history of the state, very, very young when Tom Kane put me on the bench. That's when the transformation began. That's about the same time in my life that I met a great human being who introduced you and me to each other, Lou Rockwell.
2: Wow, that is quite a story. I didn't realize exactly how it had gone and that Lou was a part of this. And that's all great. This is all. But what you just said about prosecutors, I can't help thinking about that Rittenhouse case, because in that case, you had prosecutors who were let's say, not shedding a lot of light on the reality of what happened. And you got the sense that maybe as somebody who is not in a courtroom very much, namely me, I should be more open to the possibility because I I don't think about it much. It doesn't affect me. And it's a shame on me for not thinking about it. That maybe a lot of prosecutors are like this and a lot of them are corrupt and they just want to win the case and they'll destroy somebody's life and twist things around and as Rittenhouse himself said in, in an interview what if I hadn't been me had this big media circus around the case where people could put a magnifying glass on the evidence you know what if I was just some whoever you know some no-name person right. in the you know some nook and cranny of America you know I could have been railroaded I mean so yes. I wonder how often does that go on
1: every day in every courthouse in the United States of America Tom I thought they were trying to railroad him when they charged him with first-degree murder and it exploded in their faces. I mean, first-degree murder requires planning and plotting. There was no evidence of planning and plotting on his part to kill anybody. First-degree murder requires planning, plotting, and identifying the victim. He didn't know the victims until they went after him. So the government way, way overplayed its hand. But they sometimes do this to terrify defendants and defense lawyers into pleading guilty to a lesser offense. So when Rittenhouse says quite properly, what if I wasn't me? Meaning, what if I wasn't a human being who knew I was innocent and could not be intimidated by the government? What would have happened? Well, if it had been someone of less character, that person probably would have pleaded guilty to something like criminally negligent homicide and would be serving a 10-year sentence. You know, the prosecution in that case was so bad, at some point I thought they're trying to sabotage their own case. Now, why would the government want to sabotage its own case? Well, this happens. If the government thinks it's losing and it can sabotage its own case, it gets another crack at the defendant. The judge finds out that the prosecutors actually caused the sabotage of the case when they don't get a crack at it. The judge in this case wisely did not rule on the motions for a mistrial, because I think he suspected what the jury was going to do, what it did, and it was better for Rittenhouse and better for the whole world if a jury found him not guilty than if a judge threw the case out because of government misbehavior.
2: Didn't the defense,
1: though, wasn't it the defense that was
2: calling for a mistrial? I guess on the grounds that the video footage they'd been given was not the same that the prosecutors were using, and it was grainy and all that. And I remember thinking, maybe I just don't know enough about courtroom procedure, but it seems like things are going their way. Why don't they roll the dice on the outcome instead of going for the the mistrial?
1: you know I I am smiling because that question is always asked whenever the defense asks for a mistrial the defense the rule of thumb for defense lawyers is at some point prosecutors will get sick and tired of their cases and simply will not want to try them again but you're right at that point in the case. When the jury saw a video of the melee out of which these killings occurred and the defense saw the video and realized that they couldn't see half of what the jury could see because they got a degraded copy, you're thinking to yourself, now, did the government do this intentionally to goad the defense? into asking for a mistrial because the government knew it was losing its case and it would try a better case the next time around? I mean, that's the way you think when you've been a judge who's tried you know 150 jury trials. You know the prosecutorial mentality. I don't know the answers to these questions. I don't know what was inside the prosecutor's head. I would imagine he's going to be the subject of some disciplinary hearings. I mean, he picked up... um, the AR-15, and put his finger on the trigger and aimed at it at a wall in the courtroom. this is like what Alec Baldwin did. He just assumed it was empty. I mean, that is absolutely forbidden under any circumstances, much less giving the defense a degraded version of the evidence. That's called witness tampering. That's what they did to Saquon Vanzetti, except in the Saquon Vanzetti trial, it was the judge himself who tampered with with the evidence. In this particular case, I
2: think another factor arguing against going for the mistrial is the state of Rittenhouse's reputation. And I think that a jury finding him not guilty does to some degree help to rehabilitate him more than a judge throwing the case
1: out would have. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this judge, notwithstanding his eccentricities, was a wise old bird who knew that and i think he had a feel judges usually have a good feel for which way the jury is going to go i think he had a feel for which way the jury was going to go and the gamble that he took that they would find him not guilty so that he the judge would not have to rule on the mistrial was a wise one to take and better for everybody involved to be honest with you if he had declared that mistrial would be going through the same thing all over again yeah probably in the spring.
2: Yeah. What do you think leaving leaving libertarian theory out of it? Okay, let's just I just want to know if you were let's say if this was your nephew or something or whatever like you had some some connection to him so that you could advise him. Would you say that he ought to again forgetting about libertarian theory here. Would you say that he ought to sue some of the high profile outlets that called him a white nationalist or a white supremacist or whatever? Yes. Yes. You think he has a chance you know what of he's winning doing
1: now defending himself administratively against left-wing professors at Arizona State University that want him expelled. Expelled? He was found not guilty. Yeah, yeah, he was he was found <laughs> not guilty. Right. I mean the this stuff will just never end. But I I again taking libertarian theory out of this, you know, whether this is a wise use of the governmental assets it would be better for him to sue all these people and put their backs to the wall and they'll start coughing up some money and then the cases will go away. But they're going to torment him for as long as they can in little ways like this, like kicking him out of nursing school, which is where I believe he is, at Arizona State University. I just read it in this morning's Times or somewhere that that's what he's going through now.
2: It's crazy. So that proves that... Real damage was done to him. I mean, it, it's sometimes it can be hard to win a defamation case because, well, I mean, for, certainly for a public figure, but he's not a public figure. He's just a he's just a kid. But it's you know you have to prove that it actually did you some damage. Well, it's like the people who hate him hate him so much they can't help themselves. They're handing him the evidence.
1: If right, they're trying to throw
2: right. him out of college, they're handing him the evidence.
1: Correct. Correct. Well, defamation right. is a strange uh, bird in the law. I mean. Opinion is protected. So if it's clearly an opinion and you state the basis for the opinion, it's absolutely protected. He is a public figure, at least he is now because he's a household name. He was not a public figure when this started. You know, defamation law started out with public official, a police commissioner in Montgomery, Alabama. His name was Sullivan, Times Against Sullivan. And then it migrated to a public figure. And then public person, and you can even have what's called a a limited public person status where your your public persona is limited just to a certain area of human behavior. But he is clearly a public figure, meaning he would have to show that when Joe Biden, for example, and suing the president is fruitless, but whoever he's going to sue, said he's a white nationalist, they said it knowing that it was untrue or with reckless disregard for the truth. But you're right. The more they say about him and the more they do to him, like these characters on the faculty at ASU, which is interesting because it's a government-owned school. So he has even more protection on the ASU campus than he would on, say, the Princeton or the Columbia campus. The more these people throw things at him, the stronger is his case against them. (laughs) You can't make this up. You can't make up what the FBI did becoming CIA agents, you can't make up the FBI allowing people to commit crimes, and you can't make up what the left is now trying to do to torment this kid after he was found not guilty, totally exonerated by a jury. And then
2: when this is all done, 30 years down the road, the updated American history textbooks are written. It's almost like we know for a fact that the real story of Rittenhouse will not be told. We know there are a whole bunch of things. The COVID story will be told all wrong. We can almost guarantee this. So I really think there is, now I'm too, I'm too tired from writing books, but I appreciate, Judge, that you just keep on doing it. I haven't got the the energy for it anymore, but we need some young whippersnapper. Somebody's got to step up and write the secret history of the 21st century that was that's sitting there right in front of you. You don't even have to dig through old documents or anything. It's sitting there right in front of you all the evidence for it. So all the major episodes of the 20th century, whether it's the financial crisis or the war in Iraq or Rittenhouse or COVID or all these major things that you know for a fact the textbook is gonna get wrong, somebody could get rich telling it right if they have the ambition to sit down and
1: write it. And, And the bottom line is this dirty little secret that everybody in the government, politicians, lawyers, and judges all know. Every day, the government breaks the law and gets away with it every single day. Yeah, yeah.
2: And every single day in the government schools, kids are taught a version of how the courts work that is so far removed from the reality (laughs) that they come out with a completely cartoonish understanding of the world. Yes. So anyway, I want to encourage people to check out your brand new podcast, Judging Freedom, which you can find on all the podcast apps that you guys like to use so check that out and support the judge judge thanks for your time today and best of luck
1: on the new venture oh it's a pleasure tom and i hope you'll come on judging freedom soon all all the best to you thank you
0: become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time